Last week I spoke on the theme of human nature. What are we as human beings? We may call it anthropology, but I'm not talking about secular anthropology, I'm talking about biblical anthropology or theological anthropology. And we know of only one way of understanding human nature, biblically speaking. And that is we have been created according to the image of God, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we see this context in which God talks about wanting to create these creatures, that's us, human beings, in His own likeness. And so we asked the question last week, in what way are we the image of God? How do we bear the image? For some theologians who say we actually have the likeness of God in terms of attributes. And that is, we are intellectual beings, we are emotional beings, we are spiritual beings, we are moral beings, we are creative beings, we are managerial beings, we are relational beings, and so forth. And in so many ways, we are very much like God. Yes, on one hand, we are very much like the animals, and we belong to that kingdom too. But more, we belong to the kingdom of God, where God is our Father, and we bear His image. Some theologians would prefer the interpretation of relational, sort of a mirror image of God. We reflect God. In that sense, we are the image of God. We're not the original. Only Jesus is the original, the image of God. We are sort of like the copy, a reflection, mirror image of God. And so we have this kind of reflective relationship with God. We say, I and thou to our God. We have this I-thou relationship, as this great philosopher, uh, Martin Buber, would say. And then some theologians would say, we actually may not have the resemblance like God, but perhaps we are the image in terms of representing God to others. Because in the ancient Near Eastern tradition, they had this notion that kings and pharaohs were like the image of God. They bore the image of God because God cannot have image. So how could the invisible God manifest himself in this world? And he does so by the visible kings and pharaohs. So what Moses did and what the Old Testament authors of the book of Genesis did was basically reinterpret that and saying it is not only the pharaohs and the kings who reflect God, who represent God to the world, but we, all of us, every human being, no matter what class, no matter what category in the society you may belong to, you and I, we all are the image of God. We are the bearers of that image. We represent God. So I talked about the whole idea of human nature as being image of God. And today I want to talk about something more personal. It has to do with personal identity. And so today I'm going to take the Genesis text once again, but I'm going to go all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 3. And in addition to that, I want to go to the New Testament where we see the gospel being presented, and I want to particularly focus on that one parable of Jesus parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. So I'll be talking about all of this in a short time of 25 minutes or so. 
But you might say, that's impossible. How can you talk about you know, Genesis 1 to 3 and then talk about the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, in like 25 minutes or so? I think it can be done because it's there in the Word. All I need to do is slightly expound or explain what I'm going to be uh, talking about. That's all I need to do. But the outline is right there. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin with that passage that we read last week. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So we were created according to the image of God. We bear the image of God. We have the dignity. We have the honor. We are to be highly regarded. We should not be satisfied with the, what the secular evolutionists are saying, that we are no better than animals. You know? So don't think so highly of yourself. As though somehow we interpreting this image of God as our anthropology is going to make us haughty or arrogant or look down on the animal kingdom or the kingdom of nature. Of course not. We don't have to interpret it that way. We can appreciate animal kingdom. We can appreciate the kingdom of nature, the whole universe as God created. But at the same time, we should have a real sense of esteem that we are highly regarded by God. We have been created according to the very image of God. But it is interesting, when we get to chapter 2 of Genesis, it talks about this creation in a much more intimate way. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It's almost like God is kind of crafting us, sculpting us. And he's molding us like a potter working with the clay. And he's forming us. And then he breathes into us his personal breath. That is, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we become living entities. So we not only bear the image of God, we are vitalized by the Spirit of God. This is what we need to understand. Not only that, we as human beings, we've been given great authority to take care of the earth, to be the steward of all that is of nature. That's an amazing mandate that has been given to us. But when we look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, there's a particular mandate that's in the negative. God says, do all this. That's in the positive. But then he says, I reserve something that is articulated in the negative. He says in verses 16 to 17, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And I will expound on this. What, what is it about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that, that we're not supposed to eat of? Oh, something mysterious about this tree? That we're not to go there? Is it like poison for us if we eat it? You know, people and even theologians, scholars have speculated as to what is this thing about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, I will give you an interpretation very soon. But at this point, I just want you to understand that God is not in the negatives. We think oftentimes that God is always talking in the negative. Like, don't do this. Don't do that. That's bad. And, and that's terrible. 
Now, that's sin. No, God is usually in the positive because He gave Adam and Eve all kinds of freedom to eat from all these trees, to rule over the earth, and take care of all the things that God had created. And yet He places one negative mandate. He says, don't ever do this. And you know, we understand that as parents and children, you know that you, when your parents are guiding you and teaching you, instructing you, a lot of the things are in the positive because they want to bless you. But occasionally, they might put a negative to that. It says, don't do this because that's going to lead to your death. And you need to be serious about what your parents have to say. And we need to be serious about what God has to say. He says, you eat this tree, eat the fruit off of this tree, and then you're going to die. But then, when we get to chapter 3, another character enters into the picture, and that is the character of Satan in the form of a serpent. In chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see how Satan is in the business of bringing suspicion into our hearts so that we would mistrust what God had said? And look at how he twisted. Did he say, he says, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. He says, eat from all these trees, but do not eat from this particular tree. But this is how he brings suspicion into the minds of humanity. And so the woman, Eve, she answers by saying, no, no. He says that uh, we should not eat, and then she even adds the word touch. We shouldn't even go near this particular tree. And then this is what Satan says in verses 4 to 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, was Satan lying when he said this? What do you think? Was he lying to the woman that if you eat off of this, that you will become like God, your eyes will be open, you will be able to discern what is good and evil? I don't think he's lying 100%. Satan doesn't have to lie blatantly 100%. All he has to do is mix truth with lie, usually lie at the end of the truth, and we are poisoned. So what is the poisonous part of this that Satan is trying to entice us into. Is it eating off of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That itself is evil. Now, what's wrong with us eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? We're talking about morality, right? We're talking about virtue, learning how to live Righteously, that means we have to be able to discern how not to live righteously. And so we need to differentiate that. So what's wrong with that? Well, did you know that even the New Agers love to interpret this text? This is one of their favorite texts I hear. The New Agers love this text and basically they would interpret it like this completely opposite from the way we Christians interpret. And that is, you see, 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we eat that, our eyes will be opened, we will be enlightened, we will become like God. We will understand ourselves to be divine. We are gods. And so they don't mind eating off of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, the problem here is, once you take a bite off of this fruit, what will happen is that you will begin to break your tie with God instead of depending upon Him for every single need. You say, yeah, I'm all grown up. I can make a decision on my own, and I can figure things out on my own. I'll decide what's right. I'll decide what's wrong. That's the problem. The problem is not this issue of morality. The problem of issue of morality is us deciding what is moral, what is right. That's the problem. You see, in this world, there are so many people promising that we have the discernment. We are able to know what is morally right. We know what is the right thing to do for the society. What is the right act for us to engage in. You know, politicians are making all these laws and uh, all these regulations based upon this notion that somehow they know what is the best for humanity. But I want to tell you, God expects us to be like little children. And we don't have to know everything. Actually, not knowing so many things of the world is the best thing for us. Because to think that we know, we have the discernment, we have the ability like God, can lead us to blindness, that can lead us to pride and arrogance. He can lead us to death. And this is what Satan would love to trap us with. Because Satan, more than anyone, probably has so much knowledge basis than anybody. Because he's lived for a long time. Right? So he's done all kinds of things. He's knowledge about everything, about every single realm of humanity. He knows about the ways of business. He knows the ways of politics. He knows the, he's seen how human society have tried to educate their own. He, he, he knows about all this area. He knows about art. He knows about media. And we're all buying into this notion like somehow if we gain knowledge and information and we have all of these understandings, somehow that's going to be good for us. But what we see from this text is this is not good for us. The best thing for us is to do what God tells us to do. And that is even though I take this fruit and eat off of it, I will, my eyes will be open. I will come to an understanding of what is good and evil to a degree. More important is to rely upon God for every single thing because there's so much deception even about morality today. You know, we know here in Korea and we also know in America there are people who are on the right, there are people who are on the left in, the, in terms of politics. And there are some who are conservatives, there are some who are liberals. And they're all claiming they know how to interpret what is right, what is wrong. And there's sometimes, oftentimes, arrogance in that, on both sides. So what we need to do is we need to all go back to the Bible and go back to God's Word. And go to the Holy Spirit and humbly, prayerfully ask the Lord, what is the right thing? How can we discern? It's not an easy thing today to talk about morality. Because morality has become such a complex issue about anything. And so we need to 
be humble before the presence of the Lord. And the worst thing that we could possibly do is to declare independence from God. Instead of depending upon Him, relying upon Him like a little child, looking unto the parents, saying, I'm all grown up. I'm going to do my thing. And break your tie from God the Father. And this is the result. In chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, this is a sad result. I, I see almost like a melodrama here. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Is it because God did not know where he was? He was hiding behind the tree? In the bushes? No, this is a, a sort of an existential cry. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. It's not literally saying, where are you? As though Adam and Eve, why are you playing hide and seek with me? No, this is saying, what happened between you and me? That we were so intimate together, but after you took a bite off of that fruit, which I told you not to, what happened? Now our relationship has become jeopardized. And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So we hide from God, we cover up before the presence of the Lord. There's no transparency in our relationship with God. So this is the terrible picture that we see at the, in chapter 3 of book of Genesis. But what we see in, in the New Testament, through the coming of Jesus Christ and through the good news of Jesus Christ, we find everything being reversed. And I find this parable of the prodigal son to be a perfect reversal of everything that happened in the garden as depicted in Genesis chapter 3. So now let's turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. And let's see how the story becomes reversed. What we see from the very beginning of this scene is this younger son declaring independence from the father. He starts right out saying, I want to be independent from you. I don't want to come under your authority. I want what is rightfully mine. And I want to go out there in the world and, and do whatever I want to do. In verses 11 to 13, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He did not want any instruction from the father. He wanted to be his own man. So he brushed his father aside, took all the things that he claimed to be his, and went off into a distant country and squandered all that in wild living. Okay. But something happens. And this son has a change in mind. But what did it take for him to have this change in mind? Beginning with verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So what did it take for this son to come to his senses? A lot of sufferings and atrocities. A lot of hard times. To a point that he, he was doing something so shameful. This, this is a Jewish boy ending up tending pigs. And later, getting so desperate that he wants to compete with the pigs for the pods. And so, because he found himself in such a miserable condition, one day, he finally came to his senses. All the pressure of suffering and hardship caused him to crack. And then he realized, I can go back to my father. He started remembering his own father again. I can go back to my father. And so he had a change of heart. He didn't want to be with the father. Now he wants to be with the father. And so this is what we call the whole conversion or repentance process. Turning about and returning back to the father's house. And so let's see what happened. He, was, he felt like he wasn't worthy to be called a son anymore. He had squandered all the wealth that the father had given him. And so, you know, he was really messed up. He messed up his father's life as well. So he felt like he was not qualified to be called a son. He's going to go and say, Father, just give me a work. I'll serve like a servant of yours. But in verse 20b and onward, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this son was willing to make up for it, make the amends, pay back his father. But what happened? The real story is that he didn't really have to because the father just rushed to him and he was so glad to have the son back. He restored sonship to him all the tighter of a son instantaneously. Just like that when the son decided to come back to the father. This is a picture of restoration. In Christianity, we don't have the type of a, a system that's built like in the world. In the worldly system, if somebody does something wrong, you end up going to jail. You end up paying for the mistakes that you have made. And you have to pay back to all the people that you have done damages. Okay? But in Christianity, the story is different. In the world, you have to do all that. Then finally, maybe the judge will say, okay, now you're free. But in Christianity, the Father sets us free first. He says, come. I will restore you right away. And then out of our gratitude for His grace, we start paying our debt to the society. We go back to the people that we have done wrong. We apologize. We ask for forgiveness. We get reconciled. And we make amends. 
in that sense. So the sequence is very, very different from the sequence demanded by the world. The world, we are guilty until proven innocent. But in Christianity, we are innocent before God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But because of our errors and our mistakes, we have hurt others and injured others. God is calling us to go and get reconciled. So, today, the title of the message is Identity in Christ. So, what is our identity in Christ? What is this identity that we need to embrace as Christians? A lot of people think identity has to do with something of a, a title or some kind of role. Like, for, for me, my identity is a pastor or I'm a servant of God. Or, you know, for someone else, they might think my identity is as a as a businessman or I'm a politician, the president of uh, Korea will say that I'm a, I'm a president, I, that's my identity. Some people would embrace the identity like a certain role that they'll play and they think that's the identity. But in Christianity, all of us are given one singular identity and that's in the likeness of Jesus Christ and that is the identity as son and daughter of God. That's our identity. Now, what is the identity of Jesus Christ? Do you know what the identity of Jesus Christ is? And when I throw this question without giving you this preview, most people will answer it by saying, he's, identity. he's the Messiah, He's the Savior, He's the Creator God, He's the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. As though that's the identity, that's not the identity, that's His function, that's His role, that's His title. His identity has always been the Son. He's the Son of God. That's not a title, friends. Don't put Son of God as simply a title alongside of Him being the Christ or the Messiah or the Lord or the Savior of the world. Son is His identity. How do I know that? What is God's Father, God the Father's identity? He's the Father. Father to the Son. And He's... Jesus is the Son to the Father. That's the identity. So if you want to really find your core sense of esteem, you need to go back to this core sense of identity that we are the children of God. That's why in John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, John says, Jesus, He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. That is our identity. Our identity is as children of God. And in Galatians 4, 4-7, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. You know what is the distinctive characteristic of a child? What does it mean to be a child? What is the, what is the definition of 
childness. Sometimes we define childness as, as being like, you know, simple-minded and, and having curiosity and having enthusiasm for life, you know, or having a humble spirit and so forth. But let me give you a definition of a child. A child is someone who is dependent upon her parent. That's what a child is. When the day you say, I am no longer a child, then you don't have to come under the parent's supervision. You can go off and live on your own. But as long as you're a child and you have parents, you are dependent upon the parents. This is the teaching of the gospel, that we are always to be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. That even Jesus was utterly dependent upon the Heavenly Father. He said, I can do nothing apart from my Father. I must see what my Father is doing. That's the only thing I can do. I'm totally dependent upon the Father. So, if you want to be a good Christian, then it is not a matter of us shaping up and you know, being all equipped and empowered and going out there into the world and accomplishing great things for God. That's not what ultimately Christianity is about. Christianity has to do with leading a life of total dependence on God, total trust on God, like a little child looking up to God. That's where it begins because that's the role model that Jesus demonstrated to us. He says, look at me. This is how I live. I live a life of total dependence on God. And you should do likewise. So now let us go all the way back to the Genesis text again in chapter 3. So what was the problem with Satan saying that, uh, you know, just eat this fruit. You know, violate this small restriction that God has placed upon you. And be able to discern on your own. Be able to make decisions on your own. Be able to have this knowledge basis. You don't need God anymore. You can be God. That picture is so far removed from the picture that Jesus drew for us through the gospel and especially from the parable of the prodigal son. That the son realized his true identity when he came back to the father. And from that moment on, he never wanted to ever leave the father's home. He wanted to respect and honor the father. He wanted to submit to the father. And he wanted to continue that relationship with the father. And the father prospered as a result of that. And the son prospered as a result of that. This is what we can speculate from this text. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let us pray together.